1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let's read this together. If you don't have a Bible right there, you can just listen to me as I read. Or if you've got somebody close to you, sitting by you, who can share with you, that's fine. But here's what it says. This, then, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So as we've just seen in the previous chapter and chapters, Paul has just gone through explaining that it is not he as the one who planted, or Apollos as the one who watered that matter. Rather, it is God as the one who gives the increase, who causes the growth that is all in all. So he's using that agricultural metaphor, and he says, you know, I planted a seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the increase. And who is, who is it that he's talking about? He's talking about us, who would hear the word of God, and it would be like a seed that is planted in our hearts, and that seed grows, and when it grows and bears fruit, it brings the blessing, it brings the abundance, it brings the joy to us and to others. And Paul is making the point that it is not him or Apollos or anybody else, it is God that is all in all, God who causes the growth. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul reminds the Corinthians, the believers in Corinth, not to boast in men or align with men or think of human leaders as anything great, but rather to cling to Jesus to whom they belong. So he says, you know, don't be thinking, don't be saying I belong to this person or I'm aligned with this person or I follow this person. He says, you need to belong to Jesus and you need to think about and be aligned with Jesus. You need to have the mind of Jesus. And so he's always pointing people to Jesus. And then he says, uh, so based on that and all of those things that he's just gone through, he starts this chapter and he is really giving them a statement which asks the question or is in response to the question, so then how are the Corinthians supposed to regard Paul and Apollos and Peter? If they're not supposed to regard them in that regard, they're supposed to regard God, how should they regard Paul and Apollos and Peter? And Paul says, as servants of Christ and trustworthy, faithful stewards of the word of God that has been revealed and is meant to be shared with people everywhere. A steward doesn't own something. A steward is like a manager. A steward is taking what, own, what the owner has and managing it on behalf of the owner for the benefit of others. 
And so he says, we are servants of Christ, we serve Christ, and we are stewards of this message of the gospel that Christ has given that we share with others. We are faithful to do, to do that. We are trustworthy in that. And when we meet with people, we are simply doing what the Lord has asked us to do. Right? Now, by the way, I, I don't know how you introduce yourself to someone you've just met, but we typically don't say, hi, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and a steward of the gospel message. Would you like to hear how Jesus loves you? Right? We don't typically do that. There are some, there are some who do that. I've met some folks who are very bold to be able to say it just like that. They will, they will introduce themselves that way, right? But we typically, we typically don't do that. And even if we don't have the opportunity to say this out loud, the question is, do we think of ourselves that way? You know, is this how we identify ourselves? We were just at a, you know, a, a birthday celebration for someone and, I met a few folks for the first time. I met Murli for the first time this morning. And when we meet folks, you know, do we, do we identify ourselves like this? We tend to identify ourselves in terms of what we do. I work here, I do this, I do that. Or what we know, right? I, I'm, you know, and we start to opine on some topic. We, we identify ourselves in terms of what we do, what we know, and who we are, socially or culturally. Now we present ourselves a certain way. But Paul, Paul's entire identity is defined by his relationship with Jesus and making Jesus known. That's what he's about. He says, I'm a servant of Christ. I know nothing except Christ and him crucified. I want to tell you about this Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about this message of the gospel. That's his whole identity. That's his whole purpose in life. Now he's working, he's doing things, he's, he's taking care of stuff, he's teaching, he's traveling, he's enduring all sorts of stuff. He has learned much, he's a very uh, accomplished person in all sorts of ways, but he doesn't refer to any of that. He simply says, I'm a servant of Christ and a steward of the gospel message. In verse 4 though, Paul makes an interesting statement. He's not, he says he's not concerned that the Corinthians are judging him because they were judging him. They were disagreeing with him and they were maligning him. They were speaking ill of him. And he says, I, I, I'm not concerned that you're judging me. And he says, I don't even judge myself. Why? He says, I don't do that because my conscience is clear. So, what is the conscience? And how do you keep it clear? What kind of soap do you use? The conscience is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The conscience is the work of God in us. Now, if you asked most people what the conscience is, they would probably say that it was an inner moral sense of right and wrong. Right? I have a sense of what is right and wrong. And they'll tell you, you, you just need to know, or you just know that it's wrong to kill or steal or lie. You, you just know that. There's a moral sense. 
And then people will even speak of letting their conscience be their guide. Let your conscience be your guide, they'll say. Or they'll say, I, I've let my conscience be my guide. I, I have a sense of right and wrong. And so the conscience is an, an impartial or is supposed to be an impartial moral referee. In, out, right? It's a referee that's there. But you know from history, from studying human cultures all over the world, and you know from recent events all over the world, including all these horrendous things that are taking place in the U.S. and around the world and assassinations and everything else that are going on. You know from all these events and you know from the inherent nature of sin, sin being that separation from God, you know from that all of these things that human beings cannot be relied on to consistently do what is right. Maybe there's a flash of something. Maybe there's some action that is taken. But you know from history and from the present, and you know that in the future, human beings cannot be relied on to always do what is right. Human beings cannot even agree on what is right and wrong. And even when there is some general consensus of good morals, the most morally upright people can still be guilty of wrong intent or wrong conduct. And then, even in addition to all of that, people don't always follow their conscience, even when they have a nagging feeling that what they're doing is not right. Even when they know, even when they have that moral referee, even when they have that sense others is wrong, they, they don't pay attention to that. So even if you have a conscience that is bothering you, that you know, and, and in fact, in fact, we can go even further in terms of how we disregard our conscience. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy that false teachers who spread lies have seared their conscience as with a branding iron. So those of you who are familiar with the branding process, or if you've had a severe burn of some kind, or if you went and touched a, you know, a hot curling iron, you know, that's the, that seemed closest to a branding iron. Um, you, know, uh, you know, you can get burned so badly that it sears the flesh. Right? This is what they do to the animals. They would put a brand on the animal by putting this hot iron onto the flesh, and it would sear the flesh. It would burn so fast and so deeply that all the nerves there are completely damaged. Right? So he says, you, or false teachers, those who spread lies, have seared their consciences as with a branding iron. That means that even if the conscience had some ability of its own, apart from God, even if it had some ability from God uh, of, on its own, not from God, on its own to prompt us to some right action, we can suppress it. We can sear our conscience. We can sear it so that our moral sensitivities are destroyed and we are unable to feel anything at all. You don't have to evaluate mass murderers or child molesters to know that human beings can numb themselves so deeply that they don't feel anything, not even remorse after committing heinous acts of pure evil. You know this. 
We have seen this consistently. And increasingly, it isn't even the violent criminal, but rather it's the average person who doesn't feel that they're doing anything wrong, who has knowingly or unknowingly seared their conscience from being a moral guide. And so even if the world in general speaks about the conscience, we are at a time where conscience doesn't seem to be making much difference. The scriptures, on the other hand, and there are many verses to draw from, the Bible refers to conscience or refers in all these verses to the conscience as bearing witness to the truth, objective, absolute truth. And the conscience giving us or enabling discernment between right and wrong so that we can take the right action. And the conscience confirming a certain truth, that we know in our conscience this is true. So according to the Bible, the conscience is not just the emotional outcome of our rational thoughts based on our worldviews, based on our moral philosophies, and based on our values. The conscience, according to the Bible, is not merely a referee of our thoughts, but a consciousness of God's thoughts, of God's truth. And the conscience is the means by which we become conscious of God's good and God's light and God's love. And that can come only through the person of the Holy Spirit, only through God himself. It is a conviction in the conscience of what is wrong and an assurance of what is right that can come only from the Holy Spirit. And we read in Romans chapter 2 that even for those who don't believe in God, even for those who would say, ah, I, I, I don't care about God, even for those people, the Bible says, their conscience bears witness to the requirements of the law of God that are written in their hearts. God has chosen to reach out to every single person in the world and say there is a right and a wrong. There is a good and a bad. There is sin and not sin. There is God and not God. He has chosen, he has written the requirements of the law of God on our hearts and our conscience bear witness. We can choose to, we can act to sear the conscience, but God is at work to speak to us and to say this is the truth, walk in it. So, that is why, as we look at these verses and we understand, we see that as we are convicted, as we are conscious of the truths of God, we recognize that it is the role of the Holy Spirit, of the, of the Lord himself, to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The conscience is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we want the Holy Spirit to do this work in us. We want him to be active in our lives. We want God to be involved in our lives to show us what is right and wrong so that we may do what is good and pleasing to the Lord. How do you determine otherwise as to what is right and wrong? 
How will you say this is good and pleasing before the Lord? Based on your own thinking? Based on what somebody else tells you? How else other than God revealing himself to you? God showing you what is right. And so we want the Holy Spirit to do this work in us so that we can join with Hebrews 13 verse 18 that says this. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Not just a few, not just spiritual things, not just this area of my life. And in all things of my life, I want to conduct myself honorably or correctly or in a way that is pleasing to God. How do I do that? If my conscience is clear. How can my conscience be clear? If I'm receiving the truth of God. So that what is in me and speaking to me and directed from me is God himself speaking. Remember what we talked about last week. The Lord himself in presence in us that we would invite him to say, God, you be in me. And now the Holy Spirit, as he comes in the person of the Holy Spirit, is speaking and continuing to work in us to speak to our conscience. And to reinforce this point that the conscience is the Holy Spirit at work in us, the scriptures tell us that the conscience can be cleansed, can be cleared, can be cleaned up only by what Jesus has done for us. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 tells us that we can draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 makes this point of how the conscience is cleared even more explicit when it states that if the blood of animals was used in the past as a sacrifice for sins, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. God is all about making sure that our conscience is clear. He's not saying to us, your conscience needs to be clear, go figure it out. As I said earlier, he's not telling us, go figure out what, what material you'll use to clean it. He's saying, I've provided for you. I've given you the means by which your conscience can be cleared. I've given you the means by which you can say, you know, I have nothing that is against me. How? How does that happen? Through the blood of Jesus. Through the fact that he has shed his blood as the perfect sacrifice. Because of that perfect sacrifice, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us that we can appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came into the world, he lived as a man, he died for the payment of our sins, and he rose again from the dead to show that he is completely victorious over death and sin and the grave. And because we receive that truth, because we receive the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can appeal to God for a good conscience. We can say, because of what Jesus has done, Lord, clear my conscience. Cleanse me, relieve me, make me pure before you. Because of his perfect sacrifice, we can be cleansed. When we accept the Lord Jesus, when we say, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for my sins, and I accept you as my Lord, as my Savior, 
And when we receive him into our hearts and in the person of the Holy Spirit, when we confess with our mouths that he is Lord of our lives, when we yield to him and let him transform us by the renewing of our minds, we can have a clear conscience. I said earlier that uh, Paul makes an interesting statement in verse 4 about not being judged because his conscience is clear. But the verse doesn't end with that declaration. He goes on to say, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. The English Standard Version, that translation, renders this verse as, for I am not aware of anything against myself. I am not aware of anything against myself. My conscience is clear. Or I'm not conscious of any wrongdoing that I have done, that I have left, un, you know, un, that I've not dealt with. But I am not thereby acquitted. And that's a word that is a legal term, as in a court of law. I am not acquitted, I am not found innocent, even though my conscience is clear. It is the Lord who judges me. Which means, having a clear conscience does not mean that we are innocent. Being convicted of the Holy Spirit, repenting of sin, forgiving others, and committing to live right doesn't acquit us in a legal sense. Let me say that again. Even if you think you're doing all the right things, being convicted of the Holy Spirit, you say, oh, Holy Spirit is showing me my sin. You repent of your sin. You forgive others. You commit to live a, right, a good life, a life that is right before God. Even then, you're not legally acquitted because the price, the penalty, the sentence of your sin, the, the result of that sin is too great. The sentence is, you know, 15 life sentences, consecutive life sentences. You're not getting out of this. You're, there's no way for you to pay this off. So we can't justify ourselves or account for the penalty of our sin. We still need Jesus. We still need Jesus as our advocate in that court of law, the one who pleads our case and intercedes for us. We still need Jesus as our savior, the one who pays the price, the penalty of our sin with his own blood. We still need Jesus as the judge, the one who is sitting on the judgment seat and the one who will justify or will issue a fair and just sentence for us. And we still need Jesus as our Lord and Master, the one who will sustain us to live out our lives on earth in such a way that we are dealing with all the things that are part of our life, that are the consequence of our sin, that are the, the consequence of the next steps from seeking his forgiveness and from reconciliation and all the rest of it. We still need Jesus. We can't say, oh, I, I, I'm intending to do all the right things and now I'm okay. We have to keep coming back to this truth and saying, Lord God, without you, we can do nothing. Which means that the innocence that we have or the acquittal that we have legally is not because of us. 
It's because of the Lord Jesus. Right? Now, our level of conviction of sin is based on our yielding to the Holy Spirit. So keep in mind that, and you'll find references like this, where Paul says, this is what I'm aware of, so then this is what I'm doing, or this is what I'm saying. And here, too, he says, I'm not aware of anything else. I'm not aware of any other wrongdoing. But our level of awareness of sin, our level of conviction of sin, is based on our level of yielding to the Holy Spirit. The more we yield, the more the Holy Spirit reveals our hearts to us. Right? Sometimes, we don't want the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in us. Because we don't want to deal with what he may show us. We've been holding on to something for a long time and the Holy Spirit says, you need to let this go. And we're like, ah, I don't want to let that go. Or it has become such a besetting sin in us that we don't even pay attention. The Holy Spirit says, this is a problem in your life. And we say, no, no, it's not a problem in my life. Maybe his life, her life, not my life. Sometimes we don't want to deal with what he may show us because even when the Holy Spirit reveals our hearts, and we repent before God, we may not want to set things right with the other person. We say, okay, God, I, I, you know, I'll ask you for forgiveness. Okay, God, I know that you're fair and just, but I'm not going to go and ask that person for forgiveness. You don't know what they did to me. Isn't that our thought? And so we don't yield to the Holy Spirit. We don't say, even when the Holy Spirit is showing us very clearly, this is what you need to do. We're like, oh, no. I don't want to do that. There may still be anger, resentment, and unforgiveness towards someone else. And even when we have forgiven others and asked for forgiveness, we still have to rely on the Lord for reconciliation and restoration. You may even have forgiven the person. You may even have gone to that person and said, can you forgive me? But there's no reconciliation, no restoration. Those don't happen automatically. Those don't happen just because you said, yeah, I forgive. There is an act. There's, a, there's an action to be taken. And it is possible, it is possible that your conscience is clear in as much as you have become at least partially conscious of specific sin. But that doesn't mean you're innocent. And so there is a need for us to say, Lord God, wash me, cleanse me, make me white as snow. Make me innocent before you. Acquit me legally. Not just clear my conscience, but rather help me to keep coming back to the Holy Spirit to dig deeper and to reveal and then to empower so that I can deal with all that is necessary. You see, understanding the legal consequences of our sin of the reparations that need to be considered along with cleansing our conscience leads us to better understand the last phrase in verse 4. It is the Lord who judges me. Because you see, we are to judge and be judged by the Lord. It should be very clear from what we've already read in 1 Corinthians and in other scriptures that Paul writes strongly and frequently of the need for Christians to judge or examine themselves. And we'll come to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where it says, examine yourselves 
to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Meaning, as believers, we are, to en we are encouraged, we are really challenged, we are commanded to discern. We have to learn how to distinguish between right and wrong. We have to pursue what is best. We have to correct those in error with great love, but we have to correct those in error. And we have to make tough decisions for the good of the body of Christ, all of which require sound judgment of ourselves and others without being judgmental. And that's the tricky balance there. Because there is a need for us to judge. There's a need for us to apply the standards of God. The world around us, and too often even the church, has interpreted Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 2, which says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We have interpreted that to mean that we should not judge at all. And that essentially God won't judge. That God will just forgive and forget. Right? Now, the Bible speaks of that. The Bible says that the Lord forgives. The Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. He cleanses us and so on. But there is a judgment. There is an evaluation of what is done, of what is happening to say this is right, this is wrong. Now and for the future. So instead of being led by the Holy Spirit to judge appropriately, with grace, mercy, and love, we have often not done what was necessary before others and before God because we want to avoid conflict. We want to avoid disagreement or because we have something to hide ourselves. And we fear that if we confront someone else, it will result in them confronting us and we will be exposed and we will be seen to be self-righteous hypocrites. So we don't do it. We don't reach out. We don't confront. Or we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do it in love. We don't know how to do it with grace. We don't know how to be led by the Spirit to be able to say to somebody else, brother or sister, I think there's a problem here. But the Bible is very clear that we can learn from the Holy Spirit what we should do because the Holy Spirit is convicting people is bringing people to a realization of sin. The Holy Spirit is working in the hearts of those to bring them to Jesus and to say, look, here's where you have been separated from God. Here's where you have been separated from the will of God, from the word of God, from the truths of God. And the Holy Spirit is doing that all the time. So we can learn from the Holy Spirit. We can have the mind of Christ. We can look at the Holy Spirit as our counselor and our teacher and our guide and say, Holy Spirit, you show me what I should do. How should I speak to somebody else? Do we get it right all the time? No, we don't. But the Holy Spirit can continue to work with us and to teach us and to help us to say, how do I reach out to somebody else and be the agent of that conviction? Be the one through whom the Holy Spirit can deal with through to that person. We're not to be quick to judge. We're not to be quick to pass judgment, but we should judge and discern all things and be led as the Holy Spirit 
leads us. As we continue in First and Second Corinthians, we'll see how Paul confronts judges and deals with sin amongst the Corinthian believers. Very egregious sins, and he deals very directly with them. So we need to think about that or consider that. And finally, it is important for us to think through how this whole legal procedure, this idea of you know, there having been some break, some break of the law, some travesty, right, some injustice, and then how that is played out in the court of law and the, the sentence that is rightly deserved by us for our sin, but instead is commuted, is, is made null because somebody else paid the penalty for our sin and how ultimately we are brought into that innocence and that fellowship with God. That process of that, that legal process, the whole legal procedure, it's interesting to see that as it plays out through time. All people sin and fall short of the glory of God. Some people may realize or even admit their wrongdoing. Some people may feel bad about their sin. They may even do something in their own strength to try and set things right. Some people may choose not to do anything at all. But all people, everyone, will ultimately stand before God as the righteous judge. And the judge cannot and will not show partiality. The judge must pass a sentence based on the standard of the law that is applied equally to all people. We'll get into this common standard a little more next week, but it must be the same process for everyone. It has to be that there's only one way in which you can be acquitted because if there are multiple ways, if there are different ways to be acquitted, to be found innocent, how will you know? How will, what will you do? So that's why when the Bible speaks about this, and that's why when Christians speak about these things, they say there's only one way to God. And it sounds too exclusive. It sounds like it's excluding people, but it's actually not. It's actually the most fair way. Because if it would, if it, because it would be unfair if the path to freedom, if the path to innocence, if the path to acquittal was restricted to what you did or was attainable by only a few people. Instead, the Bible is saying that, and we read this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows his love for the whole world that while we were all still sinners, when we had no way out or we could not be found innocent on our own and we could not pay the penalty and we could not fulfill the sentence that was there, when that was the reality for all of the world, Christ died for all. So why do we say that there's only one way? Because there is only one way. That's, I mean, if there were multiple ways, then it wouldn't be fair. And we in ourselves as human beings cannot come up with a way to save ourselves. So we say, God, we need your help. And God says, here's the way. I have paid it all. Jesus paid it all. 
we are able to be cleared in our conscience and acquitted of our sin because of what Jesus did. Which means that it brings us to this point of application that we say, Lord, we want to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by committing to and yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? And in doing that, when we say to the Lord, Lord God, you come and you work and you do this work in me. That allows us to say, Lord God, you clear my conscience and now you help me to live in this way. Living as unto the Lord. Clear, innocent, acquitted. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it tells us that the love of God comes from a pure heart, a good or clear conscience, and sincere faith. And uh, along with James chapter 4, verse 8, which admonishes us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands or cleanse or wash your hands, uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we have these measures, we have these four measures of healthy life. Sincere faith, pure heart, clean hands in terms of what we do, and a clear conscience. So this morning I want to challenge you that you would pay attention to this word and you would say, Lord God, where, where am I? Do I have anything that I am conscious of, that the Holy Spirit is making me conscious of, that I can say clearly, oh Lord God, I have done wrong and I repent before you. And the Lord cleanses us and renews us and makes us whole. If there is something of that kind that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, don't wait. Come to the Lord quickly. Be quick to repent. Don't be quick to judge, but be quick to repent. Be quick to set things right. Come to the Lord and say, Lord God, take me and cleanse me. Wash me. Make me whole. If there is something like that that you've brought before the Lord and you've done that and you've taken that step and your conscience is clear, wonderful, great. But I also want to remind you that you would go further and say, Lord God, is there anything that I'm guilty of that I've not set right? I am clear that I don't have any willful wrong, you know, things that wrongdoing. But there may be other steps that I need to take. There may be more that I need to yield to. There may be more that has not been revealed to me because I have resisted the work of the Holy Spirit or because I was not ready to receive. A lot of what I'm saying this morning and a lot of what the Bible tells us is dependent on how we receive. Nobody can force you. Nobody can say to you, you must do this. Nobody. It is based on how we will yield. But this morning I would encourage you, yield to the Holy Spirit. Yield to the Lord that he may work in us and truly bring us to where we have a clear conscience. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, your word to us is rich and complete and gives us the opportunity to have a clear conscience. That everything that we do, everything that we do be for your glory. Lord God, I thank you. I praise you. That, Lord, 
You have given us life and given it to us more abundantly. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit. And through that, through that gift, through that life, we can live our lives on this earth with a clear conscience. We can go to sleep at night and rest in peace. Lord, we can wake up in the morning and be joyful. And Lord, eager to go forward to deal with all the needs of the day and to interact with anybody at all because we have nothing that we would be aware of that stands against us, that accuses us, that is bringing us, Lord, into the court of law with that guilty verdict. But rather, Lord, we pray that we may come to you and you, Lord Jesus, would do all that is necessary to make us whole. As a church, Lord, individually, collectively, in our homes and families, help us, Father, to live in this way. Not where we would boast, I have done all the right things, but we would be able to say with confidence, with assurance, I have a clear conscience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.